Welcome to Chomping Down the Dietetic Exam, where I, Dietitian Faraz, and you, an awesome person, join forces to chomp down dietetic concepts into digestible bites and provide you with practice questions, rationales, and tips to conquer your dietetic exam, and you will conquer it because you are smart, you are skilled, and you got this. Hit it! Hey everybody and welcome to today's episode. Hope you all are safe and are just having a terrific day. So today's episode is going to be a little different because of the amazing response you've all given on the show's Instagram page. A number of you have messaged me with topics that you would like covered on the show. So at first I was just going to cover one requested topic per episode in the order that I received the topic for an episode. But I thought about it, and if I were to do that, then the people that requested a topic more recently would be waiting for their requested topic to be covered on the show for a ton of weeks. So I thought it may be better to cover these topics in a slightly smaller amount of detail just to cover more listener requests sooner but still give you practice with the topics with regards to questions and rationales. So the topics I'll be covering will be specific topics requested by listeners who requested them on the show's Instagram page at RD Exam Podcast. So I'll provide an appetizer question, and just to mix it up, I will provide the rationale for it immediately afterwards. Okay, so we're going to try this format out and... Let me know what you think on the show's Instagram page. So before going into today's topics, I got some really, really exciting news I got to share with you. So over the years, I've had a lot of podcast listeners and students ask me to develop a program that covers everything you need to know about the RD exam. Well, guess what? That's happened. I've developed a program that's really focused on visual learning, and this program consists of 17 video lectures that cover all four domains and every topic that's relevant to the RD exam. These topics are covered with full explanations, tons of mnemonics, illustrations, animations, tables, and each video lecture also has a pre and post test and a super duper colorful set of corresponding notes. This full program is now available on our website at chompdowndietetics.com. Make sure to check out the program sneak peek video on the website's homepage and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. Okay, let's start with our first question. A client states the following, I know eating more fiber is good, but I don't want to have to replace the foods I like with stuff that has fiber because I don't like fiber foods. Which stage of the trans-theoretical model is the client in? A. Pre-contemplation B. Contemplation C. Preparation D. Action. So this is the trans-theoretical model. And this model posits that we as human beings 
do not change behaviors quickly and decisively. Instead, our changes occur continuously through a cyclical process. And there's really six stages of this model. There's pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and termination. And termination was actually added a bit later than the other stages. So let's look at pre-contemplation first. Answer A. This stage is marked by total unawareness that a behavior change even needs to be made. Kind of like when people are unaware that we, as dietitians, hate to be called dietaries. They may not know that this behavior needs to change, but they might eventually know when an angry mob of dietitians will show up at their door wearing broccoli costumes. Okay? At this stage, the client is totally unaware that a change needs to be made, or they're completely opposed to making a change in behavior and are completely uninterested in changing, or they don't acknowledge anything positive about the proposed change. Now, let's look back at our client and what he says by saying, I know eating more fiber is good, the client has acknowledged that a change in behavior, in this case, eating more fiber, would be positive. The client is aware of the proposed change's benefits. So, our client is not in pre-contemplation. Now, if the statement was simply, I don't want to have to replace the foods I like with stuff that has fiber because I don't like fiber foods. Basically, if the first part of the statement where he says, I know eating more fiber is good, wasn't there, then it would be pre-contemplation because all there is is negativity about the prospect of changing one's behavior. It's all negative, okay? So that's what pre-contemplation is. Let's move on to contemplation. So contemplation usually involves assessment of the positive and the negative of adopting a behavior. So another way to think about this concept is that there's usually a yes, but statement with the yes being represented by a positive statement and the but being represented by a negative statement. Kind of like a seesaw, you know? You're up and down, up and down. So a positive statement could be the patient saying that they like something related to the behavior or they want to change their current behavior and adopt the new behavior. Or they may say that they're aware of the behavior in general, which can actually be seen as a positive as well because at least they're no longer unaware like they were in pre-contemplation. In other words, in contemplation, the patient is appreciative of some positive factor related to the proposed behavior change. We can consider this as an indication that the patient is thinking about making the behavior change. There will also be a negative statement involving the behavior change. 
So a negative statement could be the patient saying that they still don't like the prospect of changing the behavior or that the behavior change is inconvenient to adopt or simply just not possible. So contemplation usually has a yes but statement in one form or the other and it's essentially an assessment of a positive and a negative statement regarding the behavior change. So if we go back to our question and we look at the first part of the client's statement where he says, I know eating more fiber is good, that is actually a yes statement, aka a positive statement. The client is definitely aware that changing his behavior to eat more fiber would be beneficial. However, the client also states that he doesn't want to have to replace the foods he likes with stuff that has fiber because he doesn't like fiber foods. This is the but statement, aka negative statement. He still doesn't like the prospect of going through with this behavior change. So, considering all this, contemplation seems like a strong contender for the correct answer. Now let's move on to preparation. In preparation, the patient is planning to change. They might even experiment with little steps, little changes, as if they're sampling the desired behavior. Sometimes patients will indicate that they have started doing a small version of the behavior, kind of like a pregame warm-up. They're very low effort though, not much commitment. They may even use words like, I've started or I've began. Not always, but it's common to see verbiage like that in this stage. Sometimes they say, oh, I saw this related to the behavior, or I sampled this related to the behavior. They may be ready to engage in the behavior within 30 days. Their view of the change is positive. It's not seesawing on yes, no, maybe, maybe not, like in the case of contemplation. And it's not completely negative, like in the case of pre-contemplation. Now, in our statement by the client in our question, he states, I know eating more fiber is good. That's positive. But then he says he doesn't like fiber foods. That's negative. In preparation, it's supposed to be all positive. So if the client had instead made the statement, yeah, I saw a cool video for making fiber-rich foods, that would be an indication of being in the preparation phase. There is no negative in seeing a cool video for making fiber-rich foods. Everyone likes seeing cool videos, maybe not of just fiber-rich foods, but it's generally a positive thing to say that, yeah, I saw this cool video. However, our patient didn't say that. He included a yes, but statement. He said he knows that Eating fiber foods is good for him, but he doesn't like them. So, he's definitely not in the preparation phase. Okay? Now let's move on to action. 
In this stage, the person has made the change in behavior for less than six months. This is what you actually really want to see, right? Statements in this phase are also totally positive. So you may ask, well, in preparation, it's only positive statements too, right? So how do you tell them apart in an exam situation? Okay, in the preparation phase, the patient is experimenting with little changes. So our example for our client would be if he said he saw a cool video for making fiber-rich foods. That would be preparation. If he's in an action phase, he would say something like, I baked high-fiber muffins and I ate them and they were dope. All positive too, but just seeing something like he did in the preparation phase versus actually baking something like he did in the action phase is very different with specific regards to effort and commitment. So the way you can distinguish between the two is seeing what the client is doing in the statement and determining whether if it's a small version of the desired behavior that's low effort and doesn't require much commitment, like seeing something, then it's preparation. But if the client is actually doing something that requires extra effort, like baking in our example, then it is action. Now, looking back at our client, he states that he is aware of the benefits of eating a fibrous diet, but he doesn't like fiber foods. So there's a positive statement and a negative statement. He's definitely not in action phase because in action phase, it's all positive statements. There wouldn't be a negative but statement. So he would never say, I don't like fiber foods, anything like that. So he's definitely not in action phase. By the way, I use patient and client interchangeably for this question. Just because in an exam situation, you can sometimes come across that as well. So we've reviewed all the answer choices. If we look back at all of them, the answer to our question is definitely contemplation. Because he is acknowledging that there's benefits to the proposed behavior. However, he's hesitant to adopt this proposed behavior because of his dislike. So... That's a negative aspect of the proposed behavior change, which is a classic example of being in the contemplation phase. Okay, so that's stages of change model. I could be more in depth about them in a future episode if you guys want, but for now, and in the interest of being respectful to the next requested topic, We'll move on to our next question. Which of the following answer pairs would most likely be associated with a cystic fibrosis patient? A. Compromise chloride transport and decrease needs for fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. B. Compromise chloride transport and increased needs for fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. C. PERT 
therapy and thin secretions. D. PERT therapy and decreased energy expenditure. So for this question, let's first do a mini discussion about cystic fibrosis in general because that will frame our answer choices better and we'll be able to dissect them more because this includes pathophysiology, okay? So we have something called cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator gene. Wow, what a name. Since we're all busy and we have exams to pass, let's call it the CFTR gene. Now, this gene codes for the CFTR protein. What does this protein do? It pumps chloride ions into secretions. So when chloride is in a secretion, it's going to draw in water. This process ends up thinning the secretion, making it slippery. And these secretions being thin is what our bodies prefer because our exocrine glands produce and transfer these secretions via ducts. Now, if the secretions are thin and slippery, then the substances that are comprising of these secretions, such as enzymes, are able to move through the ducts normally. However, in cystic fibrosis, that CFTR gene is mutated, which results in a lack of CFTR protein, which means chloride transport is compromised, meaning the CFTR protein can't pump in chloride into secretions. As a result of that, water doesn't get attracted, which means the secretion doesn't get to thin out and actually remains thick. So the big issue here are these thick secretions. But why? Why are they such a big deal? Well, if thick secretions block, for example, the pancreatic ducts, they will be obstructing the ducts. And the pancreatic enzyme, for example, in addition to bicarbonate, won't follow along the normal pathway to the small intestine. Those thick secretions will be blocking the way. And without those pancreatic enzymes, fat won't be absorbed properly, which means patients with cystic fibrosis will have trouble absorbing vitamins that need fat to be absorbed, specifically A, D, E, and K, thus the need for fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. Also, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, aka PERT, will often be utilized with patients that have cystic fibrosis. Essentially, those with CF, cystic fibrosis, consume digestive enzymes in a capsule form by mouth with meals containing fat. They can also take it with tube feeds as well. Capsules are swallowed whole instead of crushed because otherwise the mouth can be damaged. By taking these capsules with food, the enzymes can get to work in breaking down the food properly and essentially act as a substitute 
for the body's inadequate access to its own enzymes. Now, you often see that there are increased energy needs for CF patients. Why is that? Well, the malabsorption from the lack of access to digestive enzymes is certainly one reason, but sometimes patients can have abdominal pain or vomiting, you know, which could prevent a patient from wanting an appetite and wanting to eat like they normally would. But another reason is the lungs. Imagine those thick secretions in the lungs. They would be blocking a patient's airways. And if they're blocking the airways, the patient would have more labored breathing. And more labored breathing means increased energy expenditure. You have to put in more effort to breathe. CF patients are also more prone to infections and inflammation, which also require increased energy expenditure to fight those things off. So, you need to account for this increased energy expenditure by increasing energy intake, aka calories. So, the malabsorption from the blocking of the pancreatic ducts and the labored breathing from the blocking of lung airways in addition to the need for fighting off infection, inflammation, these are all ways that increase energy needs. This is why the suggestion for CF patients is to make their meals more calorie dense. There are other mechanisms for why the increased need for energy exists and why a high calorie diet is recommended, but we can cover those in a future episode when we look at CF in more detail. For now, in the interest of time, and to be respectful to the next question, we'll revisit our question for CF with this little mini lecture out of the way. So going back to our question, the first answer choice was compromise chloride transport and decrease needs for fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. And the question was asking which of these four answer pairs would be associated with a CF patient. Well, compromise chloride transport is true. The CFTR protein can't pump chloride into secretions. Water doesn't get attracted. The secretion doesn't get thinned out. But are there decreased needs for fat-soluble vitamins? No. There are actually increased needs for fat-soluble vitamins because thick secretions block the pancreatic ducts, which means pancreatic enzymes and bicarbonate can't follow along the normal pathway to the small intestine. Without those enzymes, fat isn't absorbed properly, which means patients with CF have trouble absorbing vitamins that need fat to be absorbed, thus the need for fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. So we can eliminate A as an answer choice. Let's skip B for now and move on to C, PERT therapy and thin secretions. Okay, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, PERT therapy, 
is often utilized in patients with cystic fibrosis. That's true. By taking those capsules with food, the enzymes can get to work and breaking down the food. PERT therapy is correct. However, the second answer is thin secretions. And as we've established, CF is marked by thick secretions. So C cannot be the correct answer either. Now, so far, we've eliminated A and C as answer choices. How about D? PERT therapy and decreased energy expenditure. Well, again, the PERT therapy is fine. That's valid. That's true. But we have increased energy expenditure due to a myriad of issues. Thus, why we need to supplement with increased energy needs, aka calories. So, D can also be eliminated, leaving us with the correct answer, which is B. Compromise chloride transport. Yes, that's involved in CF. Increased needs for fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. Yes, that's also involved in CF. Thus, B is the correct answer. Okay, let's move on to the next listener-requested topic question. In every 40-hour week, you have 50 FTEs that produce 6,000 meals. How many meals per labor minute is your food service operation producing? A, 0.05. B, 0.005. C, 3. D, 2.3. Okay, so let's start off with a quick intro into an FTE. An FTE is a unit of measurement. It stands for fun time every time. <laughs> Just kidding. It's, uh, it actually stands for full time equivalent. Now, one FTE means work is being done 40 hours a week, via eight hours a day for five days. When you're dealing with FTEs, it's really important to remember that you're concerned about the scheduled number of hours worked by employees as opposed to just the number of employees by themselves. You could technically have four employees and only one FTE. Why? Because FTEs are about the number of hours worked instead of total employees. If you have four employees and one FTE is 40 hours, then that means each of your four employees worked 10 hours each week. So the first thing we have to do is figure out how many total hours the FTEs worked. If each FTE represents 40 hours and we have 50 FTEs, then it makes sense to multiply these two numbers to determine how many hours in total these FTEs worked. So when we do that, we get 2,000 total hours worked by 50 FTEs. Now, what would be our next step? 
well, now we got to figure out the number of meals produced per labor hour. We can do this by taking the total amount of meals, which is 6,000, and dividing this number by the total amount of hours worked by 50 FTEs, which was 2,000. When we do that, we get three meals per labor hour. Now, in an exam situation, you might be tempted to choose three meals as your answer because you may think that this is what the question is asking for. However, oftentimes this can be a trap from exams because you're racing against the clock trying to finish and you can accidentally choose the first answer that seems correct or the first answer that you saw in your calculations. There is an extra step involved because the question is asking meals served per labor minute. And so far, we've only calculated meals served per labor hour. Okay, so don't fall into that trap where if you see answer choices and the meals per labor hour is there, make sure you read all of the answer choices. Okay, so let's continue. How do we convert hours to minutes? Well, dividing by 60 should do the trick because there's 60 minutes in an hour. So we take the three meals per labor hour that we just calculated and divide it by 60 minutes to get the final answer of 0 0.05 meals served per labor minute. Now, doing math in an audio format, I found particularly helpful. And what I would do when I was studying was I would record myself asking a math question. While I was driving, I would listen to that math question and several others and I would try to do at least the steps required to complete the math question without having to do the actual calculation for which, if it was a complex math equation, I would need a calculator. And just rehearsing those steps involved for the equation can be pretty helpful because a lot of times with math, particularly FTE questions, there's a standard procedure to go about solving them. So this was one example of an FTE question, but for the time being, let's move on to our next listener requested topic question. Consider the following statement from a food service manager. My employees are naturally motivated and resourceful. Which of the following best represents this statement? A. Theory X B. Classical Theory C. Peter Principle D. Theory Y So let's go down our choices here, okay? We'll start with A. Theory X Theory X states that workers are inherently lazy. They're unmotivated to work unless there's punishment or a reward. And workers generally try to get out of working. They also need constant supervision. They always need to be pushed in the right direction. And they need 
that intervention from management often. This theory sounds negative and it is considered a negative perspective with regards to management. Now, the statement in the question is that employees are naturally motivated and resourceful, which is the exact opposite of theory X. So it doesn't look like the answer is theory X. We can safely eliminate that answer. How about B, classical theory? Well, classical theory is very mechanical. It places a ton of emphasis on the organization as opposed to the employee. It's mostly involved with tasks, structure, authority. It doesn't at all account for the human factor of work, the need to socialize, to have job satisfaction, even praise for the employees. It's, it's very, very, very formal. Okay, In fact, it emphasizes that work should be impersonal. You might wonder why. Why is this theory so rigid? Why is it like this? Well, the foundations of the theory inform the structure of the theory. And classical theory is considered the great granddaddy of organizational theories. It emerged at a time when we were switching from farms to factories basically during the Industrial Revolution. Small shops were becoming big factories. We had more technology that could speed up work dramatically, and that made the factories grow dramatically. And in this time of rapid growth, the leaders of these factories were nervous about how are we going to organize all this growth and deal with the sheer scale of what we're dealing with. Because we've never dealt with it before. How do we manage productivity considering the huge scale that we're dealing with now? That's where classical theory and the focus on tasks, structures, and authority came from. Because it was the first of its kind and managers were only concerned about how do we organize all this. Because they were overwhelmed with the sudden growth of factories when they had been farming all this time. They, they weren't even aware, a.k.a. they were in pre-contemplation, about the fact that treating employees like, basically, equipment is a bad thing. They didn't realize that it was a bad thing. Now, to remember this theory, I always think of TSA at the airports. Because TSA is very formal, but also because the initials TSA can stand for tasks, structure, and authority. Now, going back to the statement, my employees are naturally motivated and resourceful. That's what is said. That doesn't really fit the classical theory paradigm because classical theory doesn't focus on the social element or the praising of its employees. So we can safely eliminate classical theory as an answer. Now let's go on to C, Peter Principle. So the Peter Principle states that employees can be promoted so much that they eventually attain a job in which they're incompetent. So an employee can be great at one job. Because they're great at their job, the company will promote the employee based on past performance in their past job, but not 
potential ability to thrive in the promoted job. So an employee can be really good at one job, be promoted, and not have their skills transfer to the higher position. This theory states eventually that top-level management is capable of having a lot of incompetence. Now, to me, the absolute best example of the Peter Principle, in my opinion, is Michael Scott from The Office. Michael Scott is a branch manager of a paper company, and by all accounts, the argument can be made that he is incompetent at his job. He makes emotional decisions instead of pragmatic ones. He violates HR policies all the time, and he can be very unproductive. If you watch the show, you might even wonder, how did, how did he get to become a manager? Well, it's because he was a phenomenal salesman. Throughout the show, there are instances where his salesman techniques, his skills are highlighted. He's brilliant. He's very personable. He's knowledgeable about whatever the product or business is. He even has a lot of patience when dealing with a potential client, knowing the exact time to pitch the sale. And you can see evidence of this in season two, the episode at Chili's, for those of you that have seen it. When he actually was a salesman, he closed a lot of high-profile accounts and won awards for being the best salesman. He was so good at being a salesman that he got promoted to manager, where, unfortunately, he is now incompetent. Now, the argument can also be made that he's actually a decent manager because his branch does well compared to others, but for the purposes of learning the Peter Principle, will consider him as a great salesman who, when he was promoted to a manager, became incompetent. Now, let's get back to the question. The statement was, my employees are naturally motivated and resourceful. There isn't really anything in this statement that exhibits the Peter principle or incompetence. In fact, it's very positive. So we can definitely eliminate Peter principle as a potential answer. Okay, let's move on to the fourth and final answer choice, which is Theory Y. Now, Theory Y is actually the counterpart to Theory X. Theory Y states that employees are intrinsically motivated and enjoy working because it's natural. Employees are self-directed and they're resourceful. If Theory X is considered negative, Theory Y is super positive. If you look back at the statements in the question, it is the epitome of theory why. So theory why is the correct answer to the question. Now, one way to differentiate between theory X and theory Y is to imagine that you're in a job working with a manager who exhibits theory X characteristics. You dislike it so much because of that, that you quit, a.k.a. you exit the job, okay? Then you find a job working with a manager who exhibits theory Y characteristics, and you think, why didn't I find this manager sooner? 
because the manager is so positive. Okay, so X, you X it, the job. X out the possibility of working with that manager. Y is, why didn't I come across this manager earlier? All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. Remember to check us out on chompdowndietetics.com where we have our program that covers all relevant topics on the RD exam with video lectures and colorful notes. You can also hit us up on our socials, which are listed in the episode descriptions. And this is where you can request topics and just let us know how you're doing with your exam journeys. With that being said, I will catch you later. Bye-bye.